I did it for a couple of years and I had a two hour commute. It was one hour each way. I was exhausted. I had to wake up at 5 a.m. every morning, which does not work with my body clock. So I was tired all the time and I was really unhappy. You know, it took years for me to learn and build and get to the point where I was able to quit my day job and have my own products. Welcome back to another episode of Startups for the Rest of Us. I'm Rob Walling. This is episode 563, where I'm going to run through several listener questions. It's actually been a bit too long since I've done one of these episodes. I believe we have north of 20 questions backed up. We won't be able to get through all of them today. But if you hear a question today that that sparks something in you to ask your own question, send an email to questions at startupsfortherestofus.com and I'll get that answered just as soon as I can. Hopefully the next Q&A episode, I will have a guest on to answer with me. And of course, voicemails and video questions go to the top of the stack. So if you want to record something on your phone and send me a Dropbox link or a Google Drive link to questions at Startups for the Rest of Us, that works. You can also go to startupsfortherestofus.com and there's a ask a question link And we have video ask in place, so you can just click a button on your phone or from your laptop and just record right there in the browser and upload it. So with that, let's dive into our first question from Victor Wang. Hi, Rob. It's Victor here. Thank you very much for your podcast. Can you recommend any resources for drafting operating agreements for the startup co-founders so we know what to do when certain circumstances occur, i.e. one of the co-founders wants to exit the business. Thank you again for you and your guests for producing startup for the rest of us. Great question, Victor, and a very common one. So first of all, the pat answer and the really the right answer, if you have the resources, is to hire an attorney. And usually the best attorneys I get are through referrals from someone else who I know who has used them. So if you're in a mastermind group, I would ask for referrals there. If you're in MicroConf Connect, I would ask in there. I believe there's a legal channel or an operating channel, one of those. Uh, if you're not in MicroConf Connect, why not? Because it's it's free for founders and aspiring founders. You go to microconfconnect.com and get in there uh, and ask for advice. But referrals are the way that I found the best folks. If that's not a route you can go, in the US, there are some inexpensive services that can work and they will work in the short term. In the long term, they may cause problems because they are discount it's discount legal, right? And Rocket Lawyer and LegalZoom are those two. And uh, you know, later on, if and when you hire an attorney for your company, you they will often roll their eyes at the operating agreement that, that you got from there because there's just no specifics to your situation is usually what you'll end up with. But it is a discount op- option. In my opinion, those are better than writing your own, which I did once. It did not come back to bite me, but frankly, it probably should have because you just please don't write this on your own. If anything, you can draft up the bullets and draft up the understanding between the two of you. And then you hand that to a lawyer and allow them to integrate it into an operating agreement. UpCounsel is also, they they were acquired and shut down. And now I think they're back because I'm at upcounsel.com and I can see that they are the modern way to get legal work done. So that is another area that I would check out. That's usually where you actually hire an attorney. So that would be a way to go and look for, it's kind of an attorney marketplace, right? 
And then if you're in Latin America, lexgo.cl. It's L-E-X-G-O.cl. They're a tiny seed batch three company. They are legal made simple for your business. And they are not only a SaaS app, but they have vetted attorneys in all the Latin American countries. And they're 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 a great service. And you know, we wouldn't have invested in them if they weren't. So certainly Latin America would do that. And then in the US, thinking about the other the other options I outlined. But I did want to address part of your question that you you weren't asking directly. And it's the idea of what happens if a founder leaves you know, after a certain amount of time, you know, before we're, we're done with the product, in other words. And, you know, the way you handle that is with vesting. And usually, I think the most standard vesting is four years with a one-year cliff, meaning no one gets any equity for the first 12 months. And then the last three years, you then vest, you know, the last 75% of your equity. And so if there are two founders working on it, then you'd have 50-50 each. You would get zero equity until month 12. Then you get uh, a quarter of your 50%. So that'd be 12.5%. And then you invest monthly on the remaining. You can change that if you want. You can say, hey, maybe it's just it's four years and every month we get 148th of our equity. You know, you can make that up however you want to, but that's the safeguard against someone doing just that, which is working on a project for six months and then walking away with all of their equity. It's a huge mistake some startups make. And to be honest, it can it can decimate the company. You know, it can mean that you can't raise future funding, that you can't take on future co-founder level people. It really messes up your cap table. So on that specific issue, I just wanted to call it out because any startup I see forming without founder vesting, that's a big red flag. So I hope that helps, Victor. Thanks for the question. And Victor just recently asked his question. In fact, after a lot of the folks who send in written questions, but since he was a video question, we did move him to the top of the stack. My next question is a voicemail from Brian Kidd. Hi, Rob. This is uh, Brian with HaulerSoftware.com. That's H-A-U-L-E-R Software.com. This app is in the waste management industry. My co-founder owned a business in waste management and built version one in a node code platform because he just couldn't find a good solution out there. Uh, It's currently doing about $1,000 a month. He reached out to his network, needed a technical co-founder. He and I connected. And part of my buy-in is just to build version two uh, as a standard web application and just get it up to par with uh, what version one can do now. We see this as a side project. It will be a 50-50 partnership. And just wanted to ask, is there anything we should be thinking about as partners that's specific to a SaaS app? Type of things we've asked so far is, what if one of us want to move on to something else? What if one of us don't want to spend as much time in the project? And just wanted to know if there's anything we should be thinking about co-founding this SaaS product as a 50-50 partnership. Really a big fan and appreciate you answering this question. Funny that we had two such highly related questions. Basically, it's vesting and that, that's how you have to think about it. If you're not working full time on it, you still, I think, would have to put a minimum amount of hours, perhaps each week or each month that folks should be working. It's really just a matter of discussing it in concrete terms and getting it in writing, you know, to determine what the vesting looks like. But other than that, like in terms of a SaaS company specifically, there aren't really any founder operating agreement terms that I would think that wouldn't be, you know, applicable to most 
tech startups, in essence, most startups that are going to be doing, you know, any kind of software or even like I talked to a founder the other day, he's actually like a friend of a friend and he is starting essentially a a company to manufacture guitars and he's going to do it on his own at first. Uh, He has equipment, he's been doing it, selling the guitars and then he wants to move into his garage. So we need some capital for, for equipment there. And even the operating agreement of a company like that should be similar. There's a shocking amount of similarity between a company like that and the kinds of bootstrap, mostly bootstrap SaaS that we would be thinking about. Now, once you get into venture, if you're going to raise a lot of money, you're going to have a board, things start looking a lot different there, right? There are a lot of terms that get put in by investors, et cetera, et cetera. But my advice would be not to find like a small town local attorney to do this though, even if that if they have written operating agreements for the dry cleaner down the street, the you know, the car wash or whatever. I would always look for an attorney, whether it is on Lexgo or Up Council or, you know, through Rocket Lawyer. An attorney that has experience with tech startups, whether they be venture funded or not. I really struggled when I found an attorney in Fresno who had helped form a lot of businesses, but it was a lot of consulting firms and a lot of local mom and pop businesses. And while the operating agreement was good and everything turned out well, the biggest issue was just kind of convincing him of the terms, the way we were thinking about it. There was, I don't know, I felt like an uphill battle educating him on on really what we were and what we did. I don't think he understood the business very well, which which is fine. Again, the actual you know agreement turned out great. And it's the one we used uh, all the way until we were acquired a few years later. But to my advice would be these days, I would not have, for some reason, I was like, I need to find a local attorney in my town. And that really, I don't know why I thought that because given the whole interwebs these days, and as I said earlier, referrals would be the place I would go. So a MicroConf Connect or whatever mastermind or community you're in. But beyond that, I would look for someone with high ratings who has a lot of experience working with you know tech or software companies. So I hope that helps, Brian. Thanks for sending in that question. Feel free to uh, follow up if you have any more. My next question is from Pramod Bilagiri. He says, which cloud and hosting providers do bootstrapped SaaS founders generally use? Are there any patterns you've noticed in the choice of hosting and cloud solutions among bootstrappers? Yeah, there's really only a handful that I see most people using. And if you just want to get started nice and easy, Heroku is a really nice multi-language hosting platform. It's platform as a service in essence, and it while it's more expensive than something like AWS or Google Cloud, it is a lot easier and simpler to get started on. And then when the cost gets too high, I see a lot of folks move from there to AWS or to Google Cloud. And you know, some people don't start on Heroku, and they do want the control of having their own servers, and and that's great too. Uh, you don't have to use Heroku, but it's just it's all a trade off of the amount of time you want to put in versus you know if you have a hundred dollars a month or whatever to pay to kind of make that problem go away is is the idea. I've certainly heard of a lot of folks hosting on DigitalOcean and Microsoft Azure, of course, if you're in the Microsoft ecosystem. But by far, I'd say the one and two that I've seen are AWS, Amazon Web Services, and Google Cloud, and there's you know Heroku. DigitalOcean and Azure that I see as kind of a, a second tier. And of course, there's a bazillion options out there, but you know, you ask for which patterns I'm seeing and that's what, uh, that's what I tend to see. So thanks for the question. And the subject line of the next question is struggling. It's from Julian and he says, good evening, Mr. Walling, please excuse the rant. I'm a 20 year old from Washington trying to build a startup out of my bedroom. I've worked on a few things here and there, but never really stuck with one plan and made clear progress. 
few months ago, an organic startup idea came to me, and I've been obsessed ever since. I, for one, feel motivated to work on something and see it through to the end. I've started learning more about startup culture and the overall process. I discovered your podcast, started browsing Crunchbase, following people on Twitter, reading books, and watching talks, interviews, etc. But I have one major thing holding me back, my job. I work an unfulfilling job in IT for $15 an hour, no benefits, three-hour commute, holy moly, and I'm too poor to take a couple days a month off work. I'd love to get home and grind away and be productive, but I'm so defeated and exhausted at the end of the day, I can't muster up enough energy to get anything done. So unfortunately, all my startup work is reserved for the weekend at the moment. I'd love to work for a startup. I've contacted a few. I had to drop out of college for various reasons a few years back, so finding a proper job somewhere is difficult, if not impossible. Huh, I really question that assumption, actually. I'm willing to relocate anywhere if I receive an offer. There's just so much talent out there. I feel like I can't compete. Have you or someone you know been in a situation like this? What tips do you have for someone like me? Thanks for the great content and the motivation. This is tough, Julian. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear this. Um, have I known people in a situation like this? Absolutely. Have I been in this situation like this? Absolutely. I, when I graduated from college, I went to work as an electrician. It was kind of the family path. My dad had worked it for 42 years. My brother is now a project manager at an electrical contractor, and he was a field electrician for a while. I did it for a couple of years, and I had a two-hour commute. It was one hour each way. I was exhausted. I had to wake up at 5 a.m. every morning, which does not work with my body clock, so I was tired all the time, and I was really unhappy. And I remember thinking, how can I get myself out of this? And I did start to think about startup ideas and, and that kind of stuff. But you know what I did instead is I realized that there was a quicker path out for me because I did, what I didn't want to do and what wound up, you know, it took years for me to learn and build and get to the point where I was able to quit my day job and have my own products. So the intermediate step I took was to go get a job, as you hinted at, working for companies who were doing interesting product things. And so I went to the library, I checked out books on Perl, and this is 21 years ago, right? So it was Perl and HTML and ASP, uh, active server pages, and I didn't know any of those languages. Um, I had written code as a kid, but I was not up to speed on any of the web languages. And I learned that at night and I was I was tired, I was exhausted. And I, similarly, I was I don't remember what I was making, but it was something like $15 an hour. It was in it was in that realm 15 to 20 an hour. And I didn't have enough money. It was the Bay Area, right? I mean, that's where rents at the time for like a one bedroom apartment were 2500 bucks. So I literally could not afford it and I was living with my parents in the bedroom that I grew up in and I was asking myself, what the hell am I doing? You know, what am I doing with my life because I sure am not having fun doing what I'm doing today. And so I started teaching myself that and I applied for jobs and I wound up getting a job as a developer. And it was in Sacramento. And so I moved from the Bay Area. Sherry and I had just gotten married and we moved out of town to a place that was, the rent was less than a third of the Bay Area. And I was making more because I was writing code. I was making more than I had as an electrician. And that, that was a major shift for me. It was a major mental shift. It was a major happiness shift going from being tired all the time and working construction, which I didn't particularly enjoy. It's, it's hard work and I'm able and willing to do that, but I didn't, I didn't feel like I was going anywhere. You know, there was no upward mobility for me. And then once I started writing code, it was a huge shift. That's my story. And did I have to work nights and weekends and make a big mental leap to relocate away from my family where everyone, you know, my whole extended family had lived there uh, and I moved away from them basically to make the shift. It was hard, I'm not going to lie, but 
that's the decision I made. So I'm not saying, I'm not trying to project on you and say, you need to do everything that I did. But I guess I'll say, A, there is certainly hope. And B, there is not so much talent out there. We live in an incredible age. And in fact, in an age that I didn't even live in 21 years ago, where you can go now onto Code Academy and Coursera and Udemy and where are the other places? I mean, you can go to Lambda School, which is a remote coding school in the Bay Area. And you learn to code and then you only have to pay them if you get a job making more than, I think, $50,000 a year, $70,000 a year coding for, for someone. So there are resources today that we couldn't have dreamt of having to learn how to you know, become a software developer back then. I'm not saying you have to become a software developer. I'm just saying if you're already in IT, what are the avenues that you can explore that allow you to potentially work remotely? Because certainly remote work is it's a thing that I like to say the bootstrappers found it 10, 15 years ago, and now the rest of the world is catching up. But remote work is more viable than ever. So there, there are just so many options. And I really hope that you know, you're able to get around this thought that you don't have the skills to go out and compete in the job space. It might feel like that, but I would take an assessment of you're in IT. So you're doing something, you know, whether you're help desk or like, what are your, your skills and how can those be applied to a startup to where you can get out of this three hour commute, where you can get benefits, where you can work for a company and learn the ropes, you know, hopefully over time you'll, you'll learn marketing, you'll learn a little bit about sales, you'll learn a little bit about product. Maybe you want to become a developer. Maybe you can teach yourself that on the side. Maybe you can learn and transition in the same company. There's just so much opportunity if you're working in the space. If you want to build a SaaS app, get a job for a SaaS company. There are a lot of them and they're hiring, you know, and there are junior roles available, entry level and junior roles, apprenticeship roles, internships. I mean, it's a matter of hustle. And I, you know, as I always say, it's hard work, luck and skill to have success as a founder, but it's hard work, luck and skill to create your next break for yourself, you know. And so I do think you're going to have to work hard. I do think you're going to have to have a little bit of luck. And, you know, I guess build up your skills over time, whether that means me, I said I went to the library. That's literally because there just weren't that many resources. I think there was one, I can't remember, it was like Code Monkey or something like that online. And that was the place where I could learn Perl, you know, and, and ASP. But now you have so many more options, whether it's for free or that it's, it's these three month, six month code boot camps. You know, I know you can't do those, the ones that happen during the day, because obviously, you know, you're working a full time job, but you're not trapped. And there are absolutely opportunities out there for you. So I appreciate you writing in, Julian. I hate to, you know, hear that you're having a rough go of it. And I really hope you're able to carve a way forward that provides you not only with the for some of the freedom you're looking for, but with the purpose, the purpose that you're looking for, because it sounds like you're missing out on both of those these days. So thanks again for writing in, Julian. Hope that helps. My next question is from Nathan Braun, and the subject is call to action for an info product post-launch. Hey, Rob, I recently launched a niche info product, a book on learning Python and data science with baseball stats. The URL is codebaseball.com. Learn to code with baseball. Python, pandas, web scraping, database, SQL, machine learning APIs, all applied to baseball statistics. Man, this is cool. I would have loved this 20 years ago when I was trying to learn the, how to code for the web. Pre-launch, I was collecting emails similar to how you describe in your blog post why you should start marketing the day you start coding. So that's with a landing page, obviously, that's touting the value and touting what he's going to bring. Now that I've launched, I'm wondering whether my main goal should be selling the book right away, what I've done so far, or whether I should still be trying to collect people's emails, perhaps by mailing them with a free chapter, or 
or maybe I should be doing both. I know in Start Small, Stay Small, you recommended not trying to sell customers right away, i.e. turn browsers into prospects, but not sure whether that applies for relatively inexpensive information products like this. Looking at startupbook.net, which is now at startsmall.com, which is for Start Small, Stay Small, I do see you've just linked to the sales page slash offer a free sample of the content without trying to get emails. So perhaps that's what you'd recommend. Cheers, Nate. Yeah, it's an interesting question. So here's what I would do in, in your shoes, Nate. I would offer the ability to purchase from the site, of course, and I would do exactly what you're doing, which is at the top, send me a free sample chapter. Someone enters their email and you, you're basically offering them a chance to do both, right? To do either one, to get the free sample chapter, then you can ping them later and ask them what they thought of the chapter. You know, obviously there should be an offer at the end of that sample chapter to purchase the book and you can get in touch with them. I would say what I'm doing at startsmall.com is actually suboptimal because you're right, I'm not asking for an email address before giving them the sample chapter. I do have a pitch at the end, you know, that says if you're interested in reading the remaining six chapters, I encourage you to go here and purchase the book. But really to optimize, I should be asking for an email address and then they get the download and then I follow up with them a week later and then a few weeks later. And, you know, it's a, it's a sales funnel in essence. I would probably sell more books if I did that. I had just, when, when we put up this site, it was a couple years ago, I was, you know, already ramping up with Tiny Seed and frankly just didn't carve out the time. And given that, that this book is it's 11 years old now, Start Small, Stay Small. It wasn't a project that I wanted to take on and focus on at the time. So in this instance, Nate, I think you got it dialed in and uh, certainly wish you the best of luck with the book. My next question is from Franz. His question is about virtual assistants. He says, I'm a longtime listener. One of my favorite episodes was the wives episode. That was, I believe, episode 200, where my wife Sherry came on the show with Mike's wife, Allie, and they got to talk about us behind our back. That was great. Anyway, back to the email. My friend's career got hit hard by COVID this year. She's a dancer and her gigs have been greatly diminished because of that. She now teaches online dance classes as well, but it's hard. I told her to try to be a virtual assistant to supplement her needs. I remember they used to talk about VAs a lot. Where do you go to get your VAs? I want her to start looking for gigs there. Thanks, Franz. If I were to be looking to get started as a VA, I would, I would use Upwork. That's the big place. And you, you go there and you have a lower hourly rate to start to get some opportunities to, to basically you have to build out your ratings and your um, reliability, you know, and, and to get that social proof that people can think they can rely on you. The other place I would look at, there's a, several agencies that vet VAs. And I, maybe the struggle there is if she doesn't have experience, they're just going to, they're going to send her away. But I, you know, it used to be, it was like, bestjobs.ph, because Franz's email address is in the Philippines, so I'm assuming his friend is in the Philippines as well. And another one that hires in the Philippines is Virtual Staff Finder. But again, you know, they vet pretty hard, and if she has zero experience, she's going to need to figure out a way to get some. And so maybe, I mean, so here's what I would do. I'd probably go to Virtual Staff Finder and apply and say, I am entry level, you know, do you have a spot for me? I would also Google entry level VA staffing firms and, and see if there's anybody who does. I mean, there are folks looking to train new VAs and then, you know, offer them as staff. And then on the side, I would definitely be applying to Upwork jobs and have my profile on there just to to beef that out and to get the experience and figure out if it's actually a path that she wants to take. It's it's tough to be, you know, a VA on Upwork or really a VA anywhere because it is there's are a lot of folks doing it and trying to do it. So you kind of are a commodity until you prove otherwise. And frankly, proving otherwise usually involves doing really good work for people, surprising and impressing them, and then having them refer you out. So I hope that helps, Franz. 
And my last question for the day, I believe came from Twitter. It's funny, I have a screenshot of a conversation. I don't remember who asked it. And they ask, hey, Rob, currently listening to your podcast episode with Colin Gray. At the beginning of the episode, you mentioned getting a revenue multiple valuation rather than a profit multiple if you were doing over $1 million in annual recurring revenue. We're currently around 40K of monthly, so about 480K annual. It's just me and my co-founder. Expenses are pretty low. And selling is something on our radar, but probably not for at least another year. So do you think it would make more sense to wait until hitting 83,000 MRR to maximize our valuation? I think we'll hit that within two years at our current growth rate. Really appreciate all you do for the Bootstrap SaaS community. Shorter answer is yes. Now, you know, it's not like a light switch, right? It's not at $83,333. Suddenly it's a revenue multiple. It's a lot of different factors that come into play. In terms of growth, if you're at 80K, you can go to market. If you're at 75K and you're growing, you can go to market with that and say, we're going to be at a million, you know, in the next month or whatever. Like, and, and the further you get away from there, I mean, these days, if you're at 2 million, your multiple is going to be even better than if you're at 1 million, you know, not just the purchase price, but the actual exit multiple. So yes, in your shoes, I would absolutely be waiting to, to get north of a million. And this is, you know, advice that I've, I've given to other founders as well. It is just such a different game at that point, because the level of buyers and the number of buyers who kind of have that bottom end, the bottom end used to be no acquisitions below 50 million ARR, and then it was 25 million, and then it was 20. And then people, and by people, I mean, private equity and strategics really have that thirst to acquire SaaS companies because they're such great businesses. And 15 million, 10 million, 5 million, and it just has come down and down and down. At a certain point, it's not worth their time and effort to acquire a business doing a couple hundred thousand a year, right? A lot of companies won't do that. There are some micro private equity folks that, that will do it. But yeah, right around that $1 million mark is what I would be looking to do personally if I were in your shoes at a minimum, at a minimum. And if I were there and I was still growing, look, the longer you hold off, the higher your purchase price, like no doubt. And the bottom line, and I say no doubt, as long as your growth doesn't plateau, you know, there's things that can cause it not to do that. But as long as your your growth is continuing, you're only going to get more. I do not see SaaS valuations and SaaS multiples going down anytime soon. And the bottom line is the the level of the buyers that you will be able to talk with and, and run a process with changes, changes north of a million. And if you read John Warlow's book, the art of selling your business. He came on back in January of this year. One of the big things that he talks about is getting multiple buyers. And that is a big piece of advice that I give to founders as well, is you're going to get inbound interest if you haven't already. And selling to a single acquirer, if you're north of a million, is not the way to go these days, given the climate and the appetite for seven-figure and, and higher SaaS apps. And so if you're going to do it, and I talked with John Warlow about this too. He and I both were saying like, you you need to get an advisor, someone, you know, whether it's a, a broker or an M&A advisor to represent you on that side, you know, and there's a few folks out there. Obviously, I'm familiar with uh, Discretion Capital because, you know, in our role set, my co-founder with Tiny Seed is, you know, was a founding partner there. And they are sell-side SaaS M&A advisors where they don't represent buyers. They only represent sellers of SaaS companies and it's a specialization, highly specialized and it's a million and up in ARR and you know they have the big list of all these private equity firms and strategics depending on where you are and it's a massive amount of effort 
hundreds and hundreds of person hours to look at your company and figure out who the most likely folks would be to put together the deck to get your financials in order, to get everything due diligence ready. And then basically it's like an enterprise sales process, you know, with this, there's colder, warm outbound outreach of, hey, this is happening. This process is happening. Here's a date. We want all the LOIs and then letters of intent, right? Which is when someone says, hey, I want to try to acquire you and you try to get as many of those as possible and you get into a competitive bidding scenario. That's the way you Basically, you kind of run an auction uh, for your company, and that's the way to maximize your multiple. And you'll hear it from John Warlow. You'll hear it from anyone who knows what they're talking about when they talk about selling a company. And so, yeah, anyways, that's that's kind of the long and short of it. There are certainly other advisors and I'd imagine investment banks. Most investment banks, they won't come down below 150 million ARR. You know, the deals are too small for them. So I hope that helps anonymous question asker. Sorry, I somehow cut your name off of this conversation and I don't even know what medium it happened in, but I really do appreciate the question. And that wraps us up for this week. Thank you so much for joining me once again. And I will be back in your earbuds again next Tuesday morning. 